I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Throughout my life, the Ten Rings gave our family power. If you want them to be yours one day, you have to show me you are strong enough to carry them. You are a product of all who came before you. The legacy of your family. You are your mother. And whether you like it or not, you are also your father. I told my men they wouldn't be able to kill you if they tried. Glad I was right. You're just a criminal who murders people. Be careful how you speak to me, boy. With us this time are Brendan Agnew of Synapse. How's it going? And Jesse Ferguson of Recorded Tomorrow. This elevator is definitely up to code. And I elected, considering that this is in many ways a landmark film for Marvel, that rather than looking at Shang-Chi comics, which have never sold like crazy, though I suspect they will now, that we should start with a tasty helping of perspective as we lay down the context of the history of martial arts in cinema. So I'm going to go long in the opening section, and our guests can expand upon how Shang-Chi builds upon the storied foundations laid down over the past 60 years. The first films that centred around repeated displays of fighting forms originated in the East, specifically in Hong Kong and China, starting in the silent era and hitting prominence in the 1960s when better equipment, distribution and preservation became available. The, basically a lot of the early ones just don't exist anymore, they rotted to nothing or weren't even kept. The Shaw Brothers and Golden Harvest were absolutely key at this pivotal stage. See, in the West, audiences needed, and have continued to need, strong, identifiable athlete actors, martial arts superstars to place our trust and interest in. Bruce Lee would have been that star had it not been for his tragic death, with only a handful of feature films under his belt. See our episode on the films of Bruce Lee for more details on that. Jackie Chan and Sammo Hung also became megastars in Asia off the back of Golden Harvest features like Police Story and Project A. 
and in general the majority of Western audiences do not like watching subtitled films in a foreign language and for many decades home formats were an awkward fit for Eastern martial arts films as the poorly dubbed voices made every film unintentionally comical whether they were comedies or thrillers. To that end our response was simply to get our own white martial artists, hence the careers of Belgian-born Jean-Claude Van Damme and Dutch-Russian-Germanic Steven Seagal, uh, who turned into a toilet person uh, as he grew older. One assumes he was a toilet person already. Their films were mostly violent action on the lower tier to, say, Schwarzenegger and Stallone in the 80s. So, like, those were your A-listers. Van Damme and uh, uh, Seagal were kind of... You'd be a big video star, but not so much. You, you wouldn't have massive premieres. I mean... Time Cop was pretty big. Street Fighter was pretty big, but yeah. It was the one with Steven Seagal on the ship. Oh, Under Siege. Under Siege. Siege. Yeah. yeah, that did quite well. Yeah. But like the, these were not like big showstoppers. It was not the MCU of their day. And they uh, attained a cult following on VHS with a niche audience. So basically, you'd, you'd get dudes with beards who'd really like it and your sister apparently yes yes she was a big Jean-Claude Van Damme fan mm. I still don't quite know why neither do I Cynthia Rothrock was right there yeah. more on her in a bit the Karate Kid was a big hit with school age Gen X's in the 80s with the crane kick being replicated in playgrounds everywhere but not Miyagi's philosophical viewpoint it was around about this time by the way and I haven't written this down that I just sort of came into contact with whenever kids would do martial arts or reference martial arts they go Wah! so I uh, just there was always this weird stigma attached to it so whenever I see someone do that I just like hives immediately break out um, if it's just done mockingly then in the late 90s at a point that coincided with DVD and selectable languages and subtitle tracks after a storied career in the East, Jackie Chan finally broke into the West with Rumble in the Bronx and Rush Hour and Shanghai Noon. He then entered a phase of American comedies that showcased his talents and his goofy charm and his gift for physical comedy. A couple of ladies worth mentioning here from the slightly earlier stage, notably because as talented as they were, audiences would not accept them as recurring leads. Not the same, like there wasn't the same following for Van Damme and Seagal. Cynthia Rothrock and Michelle Yeoh. Rothrock was a low-level female Van Damme type who starred in various low-budget cop thrillers that didn't make the best use of her. I think she's most famous probably for China O'Brien, mm. and it's like Walking Tall, but there's some other martial arts dude in that film who keeps getting camera time, and it's like, focus on Rothrock! They don't seem to understand Not her partner. she's who we are here to see. Anyway, Rothrock and Yo actually starred together in a film uh, called Yes Madam. I think it's from like 1985, and they were fantastic in it, but as a buddy cop duo, they are on screen for about 60% of the movie. It should be a reverse rush hour where Michelle's like, Michelle's like, I'm not going to take this, this, this white girl around Hong Kong. I'm, I'm, I'm going to do my own investigation, and then they eventually team She'll up. She'll get killed, and I'm busy. Yeah, but yeah, that, that, that's what I was expecting, and it turned out to be they get on immediately and then they leave because 40% of the movie is concerned with three bumbling dudes named Disprin, Aspirin and Paracetamol. The film notably doesn't even have a DVD release despite that awesome fight sequence with all the glass shattering being all over Twitter. Brendan, I know you've tweeted that repeatedly from <laughs> oh, yes, yeah. yes Madam, folks. And Michelle's turn in Jackie Chan's Police Story 3 Supercop similarly wastes her talents again, making this dream team up into a disappointment. 
unfortunately, Yo, the standout presence in 1997's Bond film Tomorrow Never Dies, would find a new career as the classy, experienced woman in many high-profile dramas over the next two decades. Notably, she is renowned for non-martial arts roles as well, much like Tony Leung, who found his quiet pinnacle with Wong Kar Wai and films like Chunking Express, In the Mood for Love, and Ang Lee's Lust Caution. Although he was fan-fucking-tastic in Hero, which we saw earlier today. More on that in just a bit. So to pause and examine the evidence, it seems like there was always a code to be cracked with big Western audiences, and most martial artists either worked hard and failed to make an impact, or settled into their comfortable niche, appealing to smaller select groups and ultimately loyal fan bases who did appreciate what they could do. Jet Li emerged from this landscape, enjoying just under a decade of being arguably the leading martial arts star. He was the kind of guy that an early 2000s audience would show up in reliable numbers to watch him work, with films like Fist of Legend, The One, Romeo Must Die, and Kiss of the Dragon. And then there was The Matrix. Up until this point, the good films had centered around the talents of either an individual, especially in the West, or a collection of martial artist actors. The way it worked in the West was usually to have a stunt team of white men run at the martial arts trained hero, allowing him to dispatch them one by one. And with Mortal Kombat, there was a mix of decent martial artists and a range of actors of often questionable ability. We covered that on the Mortal Kombat show. <laughs> But the Matrix. A lot of quotation marks in that sense. Yeah, there's so many, my fingers got tired. But the Matrix was different. The Wachowskis took professional, established actors and taught them to fight. And they trained their asses off and delivered memorable performances along with jaw dropping choreography. And this changed the landscape by suggesting that there could be powerfully performed high profile stories along with this eye catching combat. And suddenly almost every action film had fight coordination which in some way owed a debt to the Matrix. So at least suddenly everyone was wearing black and sunglasses which arguably Blade started and X-Men continued. This paved the way in the year 2000 just a year later for for Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, directed by respected seasoned drama helmsman Ang Lee. It was his only uh, kung fu film, or, or wushu film at all. Uh, this was epic Asian fantasy, but shot as an aching melodrama with astonishing photography and performances to match. And director Zhang Yimou was responsible for some of the very best of the films that followed up on this, including the aforementioned Hero, which was championed in the West by Quentin Tarantino through Miramax. They did do some good things. The aforementioned Hero prominently features Tony Leung, Crouching Tiger does the same with Michelle Yeoh, and Sharon and I did a show on both of those masterpieces. Zhang Yimou would follow up on Hero with House of Flying Daggers, which we've yet to do, but I think might sometimes be my favorite of all three of those. I, I, it's tough because Crouching Tiger is incredibly meaningful to me. Those three are, uh, in my mind, similar to the way I've described the Bill and Ted movies. In, mm -hmm. like the, my favorite one is the last one I watched. Yeah, that makes sense. And he also did The Curse of the Golden Flower, which is, I, I hated it, but that was also the first thing I ever talked about on the first podcast I ever did, Digital Cowboys number one, Curse of the Golden Flower. It was the one where I said, uh, like, with, with um, like, 
halfway through the film, my head was lolling on one side, and then a bunch of ninjas turned up, or uh, Chinese, so Lin Kui, and um, I perked up and like, oh cool, ninjas. They failed to make it awesome, but I noticed that Paul also perked up at that point. I was like, oh, we're gonna make it awesome. But uh, yeah, no, not the best use of Gong Li or, or Chow Yun-Fat, actually. He was a, a twit in that film. Anyway. Was that also the origin of your inverse ninja theory? Yes. I, I don't know. I think where, it was. I don't know if I came up with that myself. No, but, I did. Oh, you did. Yeah. So yeah, if it's one ninja, they're absolute <laughs> they're badass. Fantastic. They will take out everyone. If there's fifty of them, they're all going to be shit. They're just henchmen. <laughs> At that point, they're just henchmen. Something which, by the way, Shang, Shang Chi does not exactly counterpoint. <laughs> and John Woo also got on board in this with the, the uh, they called the Martial Art House, and uh, his was uh, Red Cliff, which is epic in scope and was released, I think, in two parts. There's that five-hour one. And it was an era of prestige martial arts. And one of the clear influences on Shang-Chi's more fantastic side comes from this sort of early 2000s era. And I kind of miss them. Like, I was expecting a return to form like that from the live-action Mulan film last year, but it was so dreary in the end. And Tarantino, I mentioned before, was one of a number of creators who drew attention to more obscure artists and filmmakers. Quentin's entire career is an eclectic mix of his influences, and Kill Bill was a showcase for the most significant of those. Yen Wu Ping reached his zenith in this era as fight coordinator on many of the above celebrated works. He authored the abiding flavor of the action for a generation. His dynamic, operatic, playful, yet dazzling style is also clearly a major influence on Shang-Chi. And then the landscape began to diversify. Tony Jaa came out of Thailand and illustrated how amazing and brutal Muay Thai can be in cinema with Ong Bak, aka Where's My Giant Sacred Stone Head, and The Protector, aka Where's My Elephant. And you liked one of those films so much you literally called yourself Kai Boxer after the Thai Boxer. That was Sharon's Twitter handle for many years. He killed a helicopter with his knees. Tell me that's not impressive. <laughs> And Stephen Chow made a significant mark with Shaolin Soccer and Kung Fu Hustle, two hilarious comedies which clearly informed upon Shang-Chi, since there's a poster for the latter in Shang's room. And we did a show on Kung Fu Hustle, and it is an unmissable movie. Most of these films have one thing in common, which is that they aren't very accessible to little kids. Even Kung Fu Hustle, which gets really brutal at times, many of them would probably traumatize a tot. But in 2008, the year our child was born, Kung Fu Panda emerged as most definitely the best way to first integrate a very young person to the joyful excitement of martial arts on screen. In fact, that series hasn't been matched in the 13 years since, which makes Shang-Chi probably the next step, unless you count Avatar, which obviously rules the school in terms of martial arts TV. In the meantime, the global potential was expanding with new ways of watching films at home and new countries and cultures eager to show off their abilities. The Raid is an absolutely astonishing and brutal ordeal from Malaysia, though notably directed by Gareth Evans, a Welshman. This propelled many of its unknown cast spiderwebbing out into other projects, including the truly excellent Headshot starring Iko Uwais and The Night Comes For Us starring Joe Taslim. 
chocolate from Thailand is about an autistic girl gifted with lightning reactions. Kind of falls into that Rain Man trap, but there aren't many films about autistic girls, so it's still definitely worth watching. Fury from Vietnam is about a mother searching for her kidnapped daughter. Bahubali is an Indian epic fantasy. Streaming most definitely helped with a lot of stuff now on Netflix, just waiting to be clicked on. You click on Ip Man, which I'm just about to talk about, and there'll be so many other. Because you like this, you'll also like these, and so much of it is really good. And notably, Netflix themselves have bankrolled and produced and spotlit significant films. Netflix have been key to helping audiences find the Ip Man series of films, all based on the real-life teacher of Bruce Lee, played by Donnie Yen, who laboured for decades as one of the greatest martial arts actors, both in terms of skill and of screen presence. And with this series, finally found his starring role at the age of 45 for that first film, though he clearly drank from the right grail because he hasn't aged a day since Iron Monkey in 1993. No kidding. Yeah. <laughs> what is up with Donnie Yen? <laughs> His skin is so smooth. Martial arts fans have been able to follow more stunt specialist-driven works as well. In a world of endless CGI, what some people really look for is physical excellence, something that involves a lot more reality in the magic trick that film goes to in order to convince us that what we're seeing is real. This fixation on what is quote-unquote real has always been in the background of the art form with detractors wary of fakeness. And I say art form because I don't think martial arts is a genre, same as I don't think superhero is a genre. And I think this is kind of the perfect collision of those two because it's a superhero film, it's a martial arts film, but that's not the genre exactly. of it. Exactly, neither of those defines mm -hmm. the genre. Those are flavors, modes, they're very strong flavors. If you've got lots of martial arts in your film, it can be marketed as a martial arts film. And there's another film about uh, Ip Man called uh, The Grandmaster, which is a lot of that is mostly drama. And then there's some jaw-dropping martial arts. Again, choreographed by Yen Wu Ping, directed by Wong Kar Wai, starring Tony Lung. You could argue that uh, Shang-Chi is a family crime drama. You could. Scott Adkins uh, has carved a career beyond doubling for A-list actors with films like Ninja Shadow of a Tear that we mentioned before and a pretty good remake of Hard Target. But notably, stunt teams have once again redefined action on screen with John Wick being one of the absolute key influences on modern combat, blending gunplay with a ruthless physical efficiency which mirrors martial arts. One aspect that's uncomfortable to think about and discuss is how long it took white studios to let Asian actors lead their films and how rarely that occurs when impressive fighting is not involved. Western audiences still have a problem with subtitles and I think they always will, so Asian dramas are a tough sell and the number of Asian actors both in front of and behind the camera in American cinema and TV is shockingly low. Moving forward, one thing that does seem to feel like a positive evolution, over the years, Asian cinematic celebrity in the West seemed to revolve around one individual at a time. Bruce Lee, Chow Yun-Fat, Jackie Chan, Jet Li, Donnie Yen, John Woo, Wong Kar-Wai, Ang Lee, but usually one at a time. Now, there's not 
one guy. It's more of a gathering movement. South Korea's Parasite winning Best Picture of 2019 was a big deal. Crazy Rich Asians was exemplary of a delicious story that the whole world could enjoy. Disney's Raya and the Last Dragon showcased South Asian culture for a captive audience. Disney can be fickle and exploitative, but it honestly feels like they are only part of the momentum here. We are excited to see how things proceed, with Shang-Chi being a definite step in the right direction. And that's going to inform heavily on our conversation tonight. Many of our talking points are going to revolve around what is new and different about Marvel's direction here. So this ended up feeling a lot more like Black Panther than I had allowed myself to hope. What measures, folks, were taken to achieve this? I think a huge part of it has to be that this is a film where they didn't just bring in an Asian lead like Jackie Chan in the Rush Hour films or, you know, giving like, uh, you know, an Asian director a big prominent foreign film release, like when Quentin Tarantino was championing Hero, they took, you know, $200 million and gave it basically to an Asian American creative team from the ground up because it's, it's got Destin Daniel Cretton, it's, you know, written by Asian Americans, it stars Asian Americans. Um, the, the stunt team is the Jackie Chan stunt team that's been working on multiple you know continents for decades and so they they genuinely had people getting the chance to tell their own stories it wasn't just it wasn't just tourism like you have a lot of when you're looking at like white guy hollywood martial arts movies mm -hmm. i think the other uh, element of it is the sheer breadth of asian talent uh, that, that we get to see in the movie within the cast the perform. I mean, we're going to talk a bit more about this later, but the performances in this were superb, pretty much across the board. I can't think of anybody yeah. that, that sort of stuck out like a sore thumb as being bad or or even just not particularly good. And it, it goes back to what I say every time when we bring it up about presenting stereotypical. Uh, women characters, you've got to have at least three because that way you, you're presenting a range of people. Mm. And even if you use tropes and um, sort of archetypes that people see over and over again, provided they aren't the one person, so it feels like they're supposed to be representing their entire group, yeah. that mm -hmm. can be used well. And the fact that you had such a, a broad variety of people in this all with different styles of performance, different ways of moving around the screen. And it is a very, very heavily visual film. Mm. Um, but all of that for me was was just what contributed to that and, and did make it feel like Black Panther. And the, the backdrops had a big, um, played a big part in that as well. There's so much beautiful countryside and, and rolling green hills and forests mm. and all of that. It's also really important, I think, that not only do we have so many uh, so many actors to so that we can avoid tokenism, but each individual character is 
so fleshed out that the like they don't it's not the one thing that we cling to like there's a scene early on where we're at katie's house and we see that her grandmother thinks that she's asking about you know when she and sean are going to get married her mother's disappointed with her career and these are pretty widely accepted like these are asian stereotypes that we don't mind because there's so much more to katie than that also, if you've seen Aquafina in the farewell, the farewell, yeah, that that's very much the story that's being told there, and in that, mm-hmm. it's very obviously a personal one for her. Mm. It is important that we mention that everything that we say on this show should be taken with a grain of salt because oh, yeah. it is for white people talking about the importance of Asian representation. Absolutely, yeah. and I think one of the important things that Shang Chi brings is, and we'll explore this, I'm sure, in the way it approaches its narrative. Like it is from the ground up as a concept all about pay, paying respect to the people that got you here mm-hmm. because it is a very consciously Asian inspired martial arts fantasy movie that is in America. And it knows that it's an American production building upon elements imported from Asian. So it's like, screw it. Let's just make that the text. Something could have been done about the wording in the trailer. Um, it starts with uh, Michelle Yeoh saying, you are a product of everything that came before. And I'm like, you are a product. <laughs> Jesus, oh, Disney. No. You're not even trying to hide it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Slap him on a plastic lunchbox. But yeah, no, that's that's the philosophy of, of where it's going for. This is definitely a story that exists in the past and the present and looks to the future. What is the difference about Simu Liu as a leading actor and Sean as a Marvel hero? How is he? Dif- how are both men different from those who've come before? Shang-Chi is kind of a messy millennial, like, and I love that. He's one of the the age class that we haven't seen a lot of in Marvel because there's so many either you know dads because we've got mark ruffalo and tony stark and we've got you know there's a lot of dads in marvel or a lot of like people who are around that same age group and simu lu is in his 30s but he's playing very well i think someone who's in their like messy 20s and Mm -hmm. it it's a very different sort of energy it's not exactly a man child it's someone who isn't quite you know, all the way an adult yet. It's almost like watching, like, him and him and Aquafina are practically Mary and Pippin. And <laughs> that's not that. something we've seen. Yeah. And, I mean, there are also people of relatively low means in terms of Marvel. I mean, we're, we're going from, like, our last big hero, we're talking about Stephen Strange, Tony Stark, who are millionaires and billionaires, respectively. And when we see Sean, he's like his apartment is a refurbished garage. Yeah. Like T'Challa is they a take, king. They take the and bus. He to parks work. cars. <laughs> yeah. Like what other what other Avenger takes the bus to work? Mm. I, I mean, we could count Peter, but ultimately he's bankrolled by Tony Stark. Yeah. People Eventually, tease Hawkeye yeah. for being just having a bow and arrow, but he was like a, a government agent on a flying helicarrier. Mm. Also, mm-hmm. have you seen that farmhouse? Like, mm. I don't know what kind of acreage they've got there, but that does not look cheap. Yeah, th- this is a guy who, uh, yeah, I love how um, the, the karaoke and going on nights out and, and staying up when I was like, oh, I remember that when I was young. And was like, <laughs> yeah, oh, geez. But that, that helps. How many times I've, like, walked home, like, barely, like, starting to sober up at three in the morning, like, making my way and having to, like, 
walk to some place that I'd be able to crash because the bus lines were closed down. I love how uh, you mentioned that uh, we've uh, not really had millennials before. Peter Quill is totally a millennial. He's young, like Chris Pratt's younger than me, but because of his mother's influence, he is just seeped in Gen X culture. Yep. He's just like mm-hmm. he because nothing. He doesn't know about anything that happened after 1987, so it's like he's trapped there. So to him, Kevin Bacon really is that rad. We never got to see him be like, oh, I'm back on Earth. Oh, shit, it's 2019 or uh, 2024 because, you know, five years forward. Um, and, uh, I say I like what you've done with the place, but I'd be lying. And he just got in a spaceship and flew off as fast as possible. <laughs> Could you blame him? But, yeah, the, uh, the relationship between him and Kate, I feel like getting Aquafina on to be that pally with him was a really great idea because it, if mm-hmm. he comes off as very affable and personal. Sumilu uh, comes, hails from Canada, so he's got a lot of that kind of gentle <laughs> affability about him. He chill. Yeah. It's so yeah. impressive. Yeah, he's very laid back and personable and uh, you know, uh, humble and, and uh, you know, comes off as, as fun and funny, uh, like a little bit like kind of pretend cocky, like he got this mm-hmm. job by tweeting at Marvel, when are we going to talk about <laughs> Shang-Chi? And they were like, oh, okay, now. And it's like, what the f- you can do that? <laughs> so uh, right. at Marvel. Is that how it's done now? <laughs> is 42 too old to play Chamber? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but yeah, now he he's very different from, from a Tony Stark. Like, as you say, like from his background, he has no reason to be that arrogant. And also, like, he's really, really good at martial arts, but he's surrounded by people who are really, really good at martial arts. Right. I, I think I was about a quarter of the way through. I'm like, it's so obvious he's going to get the Ten Rings by the end so that he can become a superhero, because otherwise he's just a really, really good martial artist among really, really good martial artists. <laughs> he has to have that little extra edge and glowy stuff so he can be stand out in the battle scenes. Right. Uh, but yeah, Aquafina felt like she'd just gone, hey, yeah, yeah come, come with me. I've been in movies before, you know, it'll, it'll, be, it'll be okay. And um, like they have that great camaraderie, like sort of, like they really did, like the chemistry between the two of them. They seem like they've yeah. been friends for a long, long time. Whoever, just side note, like however much money Aquafina's agent is making, I don't think it's enough. Mm. Like, how has she managed to be in, like, between Crazy Rich Asians, The Farewell, and now this? Like, we're talking about how, you know, Asian cinema or Asian representation in Mm. cinema is transforming and becoming, like, expanding and and getting to be a lot more important. And, like, she's right there everywhere. And Raya, too. Like, whenever you think of a, like, quintessential 2020 or, like, new new movie that's championing Asian representation, there's Aquafina right there. She's like Ooh. Denzel Washington in the 90s. She's the Asian Denzel. Es- especially when you consider that, like, her first thing that made, like, she originally got famous f- from a YouTube video about her vagina. My veg, score aloe vera. Yo veg, look like Tony Danza. My veg, like taste in heaven. Yo veg, manages a Yo, my veg make your girl panties cream. Yo, veg spreads hepatitis C. And my veg, a chrome Range Rover. Yo, 
Vag hatchback 81 Toyota. I didn't know that. <laughs> oh, buddy, I'm going to send you a link. Okay. Is, Was it a monologue? Is that or? why she gets to be the first person to say vagina in the MCU? It must be. It I was contractual. <laughs> I mean, you say her agent's good, but I think these days, like, the phone rings and she's like, I see, so you would like Aquafina to bless your movie. Let's talk numbers. No, add more zeros. <laughs> <laughs> I, my guess would be a big part of it is the fact that she does bring a recognition cachet mm. and ultimately the you, you cannot underestimate the value of free advertising in the form of having somebody connected to your movie that the press are going to want to talk about. Yeah. yeah. One of the things that she also brings to this is aside from having a very different leading lady energy, you mm. know, we have so many hyper-competent, also very attractive, and also very, you know, well-dressed, somewhat fancily dressed a lot of the time, like a lot of Gwyneth Paltrow's and Scarlett Johansson's. And, like, mm -hmm. here's Aquafina, like, dressed like, you know, she's just a bit of a disaster, and she's fine with that. <laughs> and she's got, like, she's just got her fanny pack, and she's placing bets, and she's just, she's just a mess. pants for no reason. And, and she's allowed to be, and it's, like, not a problem, and she has character growth, but it doesn't have anything to do with any of that. It's not her job to get like so many Marvel leading ladies are like, oh, man, you know, this this man child just needs to grow up a little bit. I guess maybe I'll help him with that somehow. Mm. And she's like, eh, it's she's there to support him. But it's not like to further his journey. It's because she values their relationship. Like they have this this really richly not like. They don't spend a lot of time explaining it, but it's really richly shown in their interactions. It's very deep friendship. And so it's a little of Aquafina can go a long way, I'm sure. But <laughs> I'm very glad that she's here doing something so different for Marvel. Mm. She's yeah. got a really – and she she pulls this in Crazy Rich Asians as well. The, Which we saw again today just yeah, to remind us. Because mm -hmm. I wanted to. Um, Wonderful <laughs> the, film. The way she interacts with the people that she's on screen with, and she does the same thing in Ocean's 8, it's the, the relationship is given depth and layers by the way she, re, she reacts and bounces off people. She's so natural. She's got such a, a chilled way of being around people that it instantly makes you understand how comfortable they are around each other. And by contrast, if the character that she's playing is coming across as awkward and slightly out of place. That really gives us a feel for how awkward and, and unusual mm. this environment is. And she effectively plays the audience surrogate. So she's like the, mm -hmm. the normal person going into this. So she can kind of represent both sides of uh, Sean's world. So she like she's very much playing the Asian-American Constance Wu in um, uh, Crazy Rich Asians coming you know to, to to asian countries to then be looked at disapprovingly by people who've lived there their entire lives as you know you've been corrupted by this foreign society and at the same time he's uh, this is a lot of this is news to me as well so the two of them i love you comparing them to mary and pippin because if it was frodo and sam there'd be a lot more intensity there but they are just much more low-key kind of okay let's just like like i have no idea what's going on here let's just shut our mouths and get through this thing if it were frodo and sam uh the romantic angle would also be a lot more uh, oh, yeah. overt 
<laughs> Very true. But the uh, the power dynamic, I was going to say as mm. well, because mm-hmm. Merry and Pippin, the power dynamic between them is it, it, the differential is much smaller. Mm. They can react to things in a similar way, and that amplifies for us what it is that they're reacting to. Mm. And what you said about the uh, the hyper competent female stereotype as well. I love the fact that she gets given a bow and arrow, and turns out to actually be not that bad at it it's it's she's got a bit of a natural talent but because we're not expecting sort of this this hyper competent oh well of course there's something that she's super good at we're thrilled for her when it turns out she almost gets that bullseye first time mm. <laughs> and Especially she's since, sorry, excited about it too like yeah. she, when when we do that like we get to see her excitement like holy shit i just did that especially since if you you know, if you have like a, a basic bit of like, you know, kinesthetic awareness, you can just through adjusting body posture, you can get pretty okay with a bow and arrow. Like it's not one of those things that's impossible to just mm-hmm. pick up and do. And it's not necessarily easy, but it is as far as the Marvel heroes who get involved in the action, that is one of the more like, oh, okay, this is a bit of an equalizer in terms of people who are on differing power levels getting to participate in the big third act blowout. Mm. Um, right. And then, like, the other thing that their their dynamic specifically does is they kind of make the tone of the movie work because they they sell both the giving each other shit and being a little bit sarcastic with each other, but also the very genuine real emotion, like the tell me on the plane sean yeah like that they're really good at turning on a dime to make the dramatic moments work early in the movie so that when they have to do that later in the movie it really lands Mm. absolutely i absolutely love that line because the way she delivers it it's like they're still in the middle of the argument at that point but tell me on the plane just tells you there is no argument here she's going with him Another thing about Simu Lu, though, uh, it, and this ties in with the millennial side of it, uh, as, as we slowly work into a new generation of heroes, he's really good at tweeting. Like, if you've seen the uh, the stuff he's been uh, putting out in the past uh, couple of weeks, as, Shang-Chi, as Shang-Chi did better and better at the box office, it's like, oh yeah, here's to everyone who thought that this thing was going to fail instantly. And Mio! And... <laughs> Uh, he, he's like been been not obnoxious about it, but in a kind of I have a, you know we all have a right to be proud of this particular film, uh, mm-hmm. but in a kind of a dry, funny Canadian way. So uh, yeah, using his old stock photos. Yeah, of course, sarcastic arrogance. It's it's a it's a tough juggling act because if you if you do it wrong, you come off as actually arrogant. You got a little bit mm-hmm. of a crush going on there, don't you? I don't know, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I I like to see. Um, the other thing is, like, he doesn't look immediately like you, you'd go, oh, that guy right there is just smoldering. Like, Tony Lung absolutely looks like a fucking movie rock star, like, you know, totally there. Whereas um, Simu, he specifically said, I, I trained for years hoping to someday get beaten up by one of the heroes, to just basically be a henchman. Oh, and right. it just, it felt like just the idea that he actually got to this point on merit and is just so much like able to meet these particular requirements and in doing so reshapes 
what we expect from a hero so he doesn't necessarily have to look like Tom Cruise with hair like Brad Pitt and a voice like Denzel. He like he's got so much of what is he's got going on already and that human touch, that personability goes a long way with audiences. So I, I, I had many jobs. I mean, I went to school uh, for finance and accounting at the University of Western Ontario. Yeah, yeah. Accounting. <laughs> I've, never, I've never... Account for all the accountants in the audience. I've yeah. actually never heard anybody applaud being an accountant before. That's like a totally... <laughs> I think it's great. Congratulations, you love your job. You're one of like three accountants who love their job. <laughs> yes. I'm happy for you. Um, I, I wasn't. And when I made the decision to, to try this acting thing out, obviously I had to, I had to you know, struggle for a little bit. I, um, and, I, and I took on a number of side jobs, yeah. Joe jobs, if you will. Yeah. And uh, you know, one of them actually kind of superhero related was uh, I was a dress up Spider-Man for kids' birthday parties. Oh God, yeah. So I did that for one summer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Just Thank you. As you a, literally clap at anything, that's, that's wonderful. As a prep for this role, sure. Yeah, it was yeah. like the same thing. I'd roll up to these like, you know, a six-year-old parties and um, I would basically just get physically assaulted by them for an hour. <laughs> because nobody ever believed that I was the real Spider-Man. I, I worked for a company that was a little like stingy. And um, I feel like if you had gotten like a movie quality suit and you showed up, like some kids might actually, but I had like more Walmart. Like less yeah, Marvel, yeah. more Walmart. Yeah, and, right uh, next to the Mike Myers Halloween costume, it, it, right? Exactly. You know, like the 1960s Spider-Man meme yeah. where they're like pointing at each other? Yeah. It was like that. And so I showed up <laughs> like that, and none of the kids knew what that Spider-Man even was because they didn't watch the cartoons. They just watched the movies. And so um, it, there was it was terrible. It was terrible. But tell me about your parents because I think your story is really incredible that you, your whole family's from China. Yes. And then your yes. parents moved to America or Toronto to become... Aerospace, what? Aerospace engineers, yes. Yeah, so they they um, did their postgrad studies at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. That's crazy. Both of them. Both of them, yes. Yeah. They're very, very intelligent people, and they have no idea what happened to me. <laughs> now, speaking of Tony Lung, paying close attention to his original roots as the Chinese racial stereotype, literally <laughs> Fu Manchu in the Shang-Chi comics. He was the father of Shang-Chi, and he was Fu Manchu, but also a separate character as the Mandarin in the early Iron Man comics. How does Shu Wenwu compare with previous Marvel villains? I'm actually going to pause for just a moment and take us to Wikipedia so I can read you the beginning of... Um, how Fu Manchu was created. Because I found this out today and I was like, fuck me, I've got to say this. So <laughs> much racism. Oh, yeah. Dr. Fu Manchu is a fictional villain who was introduced in a series of novels by the English author Sax Roma during the first half of the 20th century. The character was also extensively featured in cinema, television, radio, comic strips, and comic books for over 90 years and has also become an archetype of the evil criminal genius and mad scientist. Basically, most of Bond's villains were based in this, uh, while lending his name to the Fu Manchu mustache. But just, just listen to the actual inception in the background. It's just a paragraph long. Mm -hmm. According to his own account, Sax Roma decided to start the Dr. Fu Manchu series after his Ouija board spelled out C-H-I-N-A-M-A-N. Ah, oh, Jesus. When he asked what would make his fortune, C-H-I-N-A-M-A-N. 
What he didn't know was he'd contacted a stoner who was going, China, man. Like, you got to go to China. Yeah, you got to China. <laughs> he missed the comma. Clive Bloom argues... Oh, shit is important. Clive Bloom argues that the portrait of Dr. Fu Manchu was based on the popular musical magician Chung Ling Su, a white man in costume who shaved off his Victorian moustache and donned a Mandarin costume and pigtail. As for Roma's theories concerning Eastern devilry and the unemotional cruelty of the Chinese, he seeks to give them intellectual credentials by referring to the travel writings of Bernard Taylor. Taylor was a would-be ethnographer who, though unversed in Chinese language and culture, used the pseudoscience of... Physiognomy. Physiognomy. That's bumps on your head, folks. To find the Chinese race deeps on deeps of depravity so shocking and horrible that their character cannot even be hinted. Roma's protagonists treat him as an authority. Roma wrote 14 novels concerning the villain. The image of Orientals invading Western nations became the foundation of Roma's commercial success, being able to sell 20 million copies in his lifetime. So this fucking prick writes a whole bunch of novels about uh, this guy and basically cements and immortalizes the Fu Manchu type. Ming the Merciless was just this. <laughs> so my question again. How does Xu Wenwu compare with previous Marvel villains taking all that I've just said into account most immediately and apparently it explicitly says how freaking stupid that is because <laughs> the way it talks about the mandarin as created by aldrich killian and played by trevor slattery they are not very subtly talking about fu manchu and the mandarin the character and mm -hmm. the basic you know yellow very ignorant yellow peril sort of stereotypes and of like it's a chicken dish. You guys were scared about an orange. What is wrong with you? You know, just do do any basic reading at all anywhere. Yeah. And having having that come from Tony Lung, like it's I, I'm not sure if it quite qualifies as a lampshade, but it, if it is, it is like an immaculately designed lampshade. It really is like it, I half expected Tony Lung to like look up at the camera as he said that when he was like, and it worked because America <laughs> is stupid. <laughs> and I then they just really make important. an actual character instead. Yeah, like they really, really did a great job with that. I think it's really important to point out or to the fact that it's so he's such a sympathetic antagonist. You mentioned that we were going to end up drawing a lot of parallels to Black Panther. Like he is as fleshed out and as well written and well-performed and uh, sympathetic for the wrong reasons as Killmonger was in that. Like you, you feel for him even as you are recognizing that he is wrong and that the things that he is doing are horrendous, which is a or very, that he very is right. Tough. And the things he is doing are horrendous. Yeah. In the, in the case of Killmonger that he is right, but the things he's doing are, are horrendous. In this case, it's, he is obviously wrong, but, we see where he's going. We see how he got there, why he's doing the things that we do. And we feel bad for him, even as we are rooting for him to fail, which is a really tight line to walk and very impressive. He was so sure he could hear his wife's voice coming from that cave. He actually convinced me. I was like, and we're actually going to find he was actually right. And he's right. not. But that's how much 
emphasis Tony Lung puts into his performance. He's so grave and yet so intense without going over the top. There was he's so serious about his his acting style. There was one point when he was I think he was doing uh, Lust Caution and he realized he was walking like a character he had portrayed previously, I think in in The Moon for Love. And he was like that these characters that I create stay with me. Like like you once you inhabit that person, they become kind of a, an aspect of you. And he's got we watched a fantastic video today from a, uh, a YouTube creator called Accented Cinema on how Tony Lung acts with his eyes. And there's so much subtlety in just, just little things that he does with those. This reserved and implicit style would go on to win Tony Lung his Best Actor Award in the Cannes Film Festival for his performance in In the Mood for Love. In this film, Tony Lung plays a husband with an unfaithful wife. It was 1960s Hong Kong. Gossip like this was enough to ruin someone's life. So Leung has no one to talk to and has to hold everything inside his heart. If the role was played by Phase 1 Tony Leung, the anger, the frustration, the sadness, and the act of him hiding it would all be perfectly expressed. But instead, with a more mature Tony Leung, his acting is much harder to decipher. Other than the sense of loneliness, you don't really know what he's thinking. He stares at himself as we stare at his eyes. We want to listen, but he's not saying anything. At times, his eyes look like they are about to tear up. But they never do. It's ambiguous. His eyes shift, looking at nothing but his own thoughts. And then, he smiles. At that moment, everything makes sense. He, too, doesn't know what he's thinking. He doesn't know how to react to everything that had happened. He, by instinct, pretends nothing is happening. At this point, Lang's acting doesn't just have moods and emotions, it has stories. That is a much more naturalistic choice, a distinct choice from this particular character. And to do that, Lang becomes the character. That is some masterful work. And I love that you delineated him not as a villain, but as an antagonist, because the way he works in the film, he's kind of an antagonist for a long period in history. Then when he meets right. his wife-to-be, he stops antagonizing people. He just stops still and stays with her and abides and grows to love that experience of loving and being loved so much that when it's then viciously taken away from him, frankly, his response is measured because you could expect a John Wick level of tearing I, down the entire criminal underworld as a result of I this. I was just actually going to make that comparison because it just occurred to me that if if the story of John Wick were being told from the perspective of anyone other than John Wick, it would be this character. Mm. Like the, the parallels in terms of the events is staggering. And like I said, I, it just occurred to me as you were saying that. Mm. It's like, oh my God, he's John Wick. The Baba Yaga. Uh, such a massive part of this is the fact that Lung specifically did not want to approach playing him as a villain, mm. playing him as a bad guy. It was For him, it was all about finding the 
the the motivations for this guy that are human that are I was going to say pure but that's probably not quite the right word to use but they are very as you say understandable and the 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 key phrase that he used was that this is somebody who is so craving for love mm. that it drives all of his actions including and especially the terrible ones mm. the the way the film knows that he is too sympathetic to completely be a monster is also, I think, a point in its favor. It helps that we're used to seeing heroes finding, like, heroes with, let's say, troublesome pasts finding redemption is a thing in the MCU. Obviously, Tony Stark is a, is an easy parallel, but, like, mm -hmm. it's also all over, like, warlords who did a bad and then decide to do good and protect the people or at least, you know, settle down for a peaceful life is one of those like martial arts movie tropes that has been around forever. Yeah. And getting to see him play through this, but see his his redemption and his happy ending ripped away is very powerful, especially since, like you said, he never quite goes completely back to, you know, scorched earth tactics. Mm -hmm. Just looking at his men's weapons in the final battle, they're for subduing and capturing and like he's you know even when he goes back to the rings after he's lost what you know what made him want to stop being the leader of the ten rings he's still not quite as big of a monster it seems mm -hmm. and so you get like the that he could still turn this around there's still a chance for us to like bring that family back together so that that really drives so much of the dramatic tension in the third act i'm now really saddened that he dies at the end because I that know, is a fantastic too. character to keep moving forwards because if he's that long lived you can do pretty much anything with him i think one of the other elements of it as well is that the focus of his terribleness for want of a better term, is is less on the uh, sort of global domination side. And because we see it primarily through the eyes of Jialing uh, and Shang-Chi, it's about how he abused and misused his own family, his own children. And, and in doing so, tragically, lost the ability to love and be loved, precisely. which is what he was craving. So he ends up creating his own punishment. Now, if you compare him to the obvious uh, villain that you would put that up against, which is Thanos, the abuse that he meets out to his daughters is kind of lost in the swash of, but he destroyed half the universe. And while those actions are terrible and they affect the relationship that he has with Gamora and with Nebula, yeah. they are not the focus of why he is a bad man, to, to really simplify it down. Mm. Whereas uh, be, I think because we see... Uh, Wenwu as primarily his his greatest offense is that he is a bad father mm. and I think the most of us have known somebody in our lives who we loved because they were family but they did not treat us very well and that's a much more relatable scenario than but he destroyed half the universe so he has to be a bad guy yeah, they almost skipped over the like world dominating cult at the beginning during that origin <laughs> story. They're talking about like, yeah, you know, he he made factions and we toppled governments and we did all things. But never mind that. The important thing is 
how crappily he treated his kids. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, since that's a story, like that's one of the things that I think could have strengthened that point on Thanos is we never see what he does to Gamora and Nebula, except mm-hmm. for like a couple very small pieces in the immediate timeline, getting to live with, you know, a lot of it's in flashbacks and montages, which, you know, that's great for the genre anyway. So it's it's sure. a canny use of filmmaking technique. But we get to see, you know, just the his refusal to look at his son with anything other than disappointment is mm-hmm. so powerful. So like and and a seeing I, I can't remember the name of the actor who plays um, Shang-Chi as a as specifically as a teenager. But like the way he's always looking for his father's approval, no matter how many times he either loses or finally gets something right. And it's never there. And you get to actually see that dramatized and the way it's also played against the way he just doesn't even talk to his daughter so you actually have that being like something that you're building on dramatically as opposed to just it's his backstory that we learned about from someone saying it Jaden Shang and Arnold's son portray Shang-Chi as a child and a teenager respectively so Arnold's son's the one you're talking about yeah that that kid is good Mm -hmm. yeah and even like that carries over to the present day when they're when they're finally reunited you know he hasn't seen his daughter for you know, four, four or five years either. And when they're finally all in the same place, they get back off the chopper and he says, everyone, my son is home. Take the girls to their room. Like, it's so, it's so bad. Oh, it is. And like, you can see her face on that too. Like you, you get to see the way that these relationships or lack thereof are still affecting everyone in the present day. And those ramifications are, are carrying over and continue to shape the characters. Mm. That's such a key facet to how uh, Shieling relates to the rest of the world as well, because the, mm-hmm. the her her character, I think, is thin. We'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit. Oh, no, go for it now. Like, th- that was the next question. So, oh, okay. like, if you want, I, I think... I, I come on, I'm almost completely going to agree with what you're about to say, so go for okay. it. Okay. Um, yeah, her, her character is a bit thin on the ground in terms of what she gets to do and how much screen time she has. It feels, particularly with the the postscript that she has, that it's more of a setup for something that's going to happen later. Yeah, thank but goodness one... for that. Without that stinger, I was like, oh, for goodness yeah. sake. <laughs> you had mm-hmm. her, and there she goes. But um, yeah, the, one of the key things that I really, really appreciated about her is that she is fundamentally portraying the juxtaposition between the things that you are able to do when everybody ignores you and the things that you have to do when everybody ignores you. She's also, aside from them doing a lot of really good work with her and Shang-Chi, communicating sibling, like, tension just through their very terse interactions and looks, which which especially pays dividends later in the film, where they're having to basically, like, say things with their eyes while they're writing CGI creatures. That, that, that I think, works very well. But one thing that I specifically caught on with my revisit of the film last night was... Um, Zhiling is also almost like reclaiming the the place of female martial artists in the genre with the arc of her character as it culminates mm-hmm. in that post credit stinger. Because so much of if you look at the history of martial arts cinema, a lot of it is driven by female stars. You've got like 
uh, Ching Pepe, who was, um, I think she was uh, like one of the very first big stars of the Shaw Brothers. And she got kind of like pushed aside in the late 70s and early 80s as a bunch of male stars rose to prominence. You have Michelle Yeoh, who like had three different careers. Like she was a dancer, <laughs> then a martial artist. Then she got married and stopped making stuff. Then she was a martial artist in movies again. And then she like moved on to prestige stuff. But like you have so many periods of martial arts movie history where it's like, oh, you've got these awesome female characters driving this story. And then like two years later, they just don't get nearly as much work. Like they're they're just kind of like worn down and, and their contributions are sanded down into nothing. Mm. And mm -hmm. and whereas Zhiling's like, nope, this is mine. This chair is mine. This shit's mine. <laughs> I'm gonna put my face on it. I'm gonna do it my way. And we're we are taking this into the future with not just, you know, like me at the head, but with, you know, actively, you know, equalizing the representation in this organization. So how much of the Ten Rings moving forward do we think is going to be uh, underground mercenary uh, society toppling cult? And how much of it is just going to be underground live streamed cage matches? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of hoping they go a little bit more Robin Hood meets Fight Club. Well, not Fight Club. Robin Hood meets like, you know, um, underground cage fighting than like mm -hmm. what the Widows or whatever we're doing. Mm. Yeah. I do actually, uh, I, I, one of my questions at the end is, was going to be, uh, what are you looking forward to in the future? But ultimately, it's the answer to that question is what I'm looking forward to in the future because I was like racking my brains going, who do I want him to meet? Spider-Man, the Hulk, uh, Doctor Strange. And I was like, no, I, I want to see all the stuff that they've built here continue and pay off like they've got this rich history and it's also it's going in fragmented and conflicting directions which makes for some great drama with all of this this family situation i was like again that this that missing piece at the end because the um the the, the actress uh, meng uh, zhang this was her first film she had been That's in incredible. a lot of theater before but uh, she she did what most people who uh, audition for Marvel do, which is to turn up on the day for unnamed role in unnamed movie and get given what I'm assuming in in this case, same as Simu, a Goodwill hunting scene to act out. But um, yeah, she she then <laughs> trained to do that martial arts. I'm like, she looks like she's been training for 20 years. She's no like joke. The, the, her style reminded me very much of uh, Jury from uh, Street Fighter Four onwards. She's got this very like kicky, um, like like her very Taekwondo kind of look. I, I'm I'm not an expert on every single permutation of martial arts, but. That in particular, I was very gratified to see. Most female martial arts, you get a lot of very graceful movements, a lot of like sort of handwork and sort of light kicking, but not like bruiser kicking, like I can really, I can fling you across the room with my leg, which reminded mm -hmm. me of Chun-Li, which reminded me of Street Fighter colon The Legend <laughs> of Chun-Li. 
not starring Zhang Ziyi in her prime, but Kristen Kroik. And I was just like, wow, they really fucking had that film and then shat it away. But, like, you know, watching Meng Zhang here, she's absolutely got the chops to be, like, um, one of the, like, hopefully emergent sort of, like, I suppose sort of undergroundy political uh, sort of like movers and shakers in Marvel moving forwards rather than it just being about her family situation with her brother. So again, we can explore um, shades of gray there rather than her just being a gloating villain. I'm really looking forward to a, I, I don't know if they're actually doing it. There's obviously not been any sort of an announcement, but I would really love to see a 10 rings Disney plus show like a six episode Hmm. series about her rebuilding this organization and all those women she's training to fight, trying to make it her own and figure out how figuring out how to uh, use them for her own ends and make like come to terms with like her, her family's reputation and what her brother thinks that she's doing and how that, how that works and her relationship with, with Shang-Chi and, uh, and, and yeah, just everything about that just excites me. So what were the standout moments for you? Like which bits of the film do you really like? What were the people went back to see this in the cinema as they do with all the, the Marvel movies that resonate the most. Uh, So which bits did just stood out for you? The opening bus sequence, like not opening, but it's it's very <sighs> early, early in the movie. Yeah, yeah, is such a flex because it is an action <laughs> sequence that's unlike one that we've ever seen in a Marvel movie before. But it's it's basically taking the the Jackie Chan police story stunt heavy martial arts action, being like, okay, how do we do this amped up just a little bit in a Marvel context and still like even though we're not making movies the way they make them in you know in 1980s hong kong where they basically (laughs) got tons of time and had no safety regulations so they just Mm -hmm. you know threw themselves at buses like (laughs) jackie we're gonna push you down this set of stairs made of very fragile real glass okay Okay. just ride this pole down covered in christmas lights three stories and try not to die at the bottom good go (laughs) and and what Hence they do all of those is, bloopers where he actually injures himself. Mm-hmm. Precisely. And they they still are so focused on bodies in motion. And it sets the tone for the rest of the movie mm. of the all of the because so often in Marvel movies, you have to wrap the story around to a point where the big special effects sequence can be justified narratively, mm. which they're fairly good at. But when you're dealing with martial arts and bodies in motion and like the smaller scale specifically, you know, this sort of like genre, it's, it's a little bit easier to get personal explosive emotions boiled to the point where now we have to fight. And they, they do that extremely quickly on the bus. They establish a crap load of geography with the people on the bus and the parts of the bus and then they freaking cut it in half and crash it down the hill and they have a <laughs> dude with a freaking laser sword in his arm and still it feels tactile and real down to like I don't know if you've seen uh, Simulu like did that stunt of him jumping off the bus grabbing the mirror and swinging back onto the side it was not on a bus in motion it was like on a prop against green screen but he still did the jump and nice. landed against the side of the bus so they just they do so much in that right down to him 
not exactly looking like Jackie Chan, but he has just a couple mannerisms. The way he adjusts his jacket, mm. you know, mm-hmm. when he when he stands up, it's like, oh, okay, we're in business. We're doing something. <laughs> we have we have shifted gears very noticeably. As a martial arts guy, and a <laughs> hold on a second, as somebody who did take a little bit of martial arts in their that's youth, a better readjustment. <laughs> <laughs> I'm speaking uh, as a martial arts guy. Yeah, as you guys, as somebody you who's, fight? <laughs> exactly no, like as somebody who has been into martial arts and has been heavily into parkour, particularly scaffolding-based parkour. This bus scene and the later scene in like on the side of the building with, with the, the actual sca- yeah. scaffolding just resonated with me so much because not only can I see. Like, like, are you watching these incredible, incredible stunts and seeing that like somebody like I've I have been able to do some of those things on a much smaller scale so I can recognize just how hard it is. And now I'm going to have nightmares of you jumping from building to building and falling off some scaffolding and hitting a lamppost and doing yourself a mischief. Oh, buddy, I've got videos. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's just the way that Simu moves through the environment is so incredible and the fact that he's able to make it so natural and as someone who doesn't who didn't have a big martial arts background just being able to train up to do that is incredibly impressive you mentioned brendan a minute ago how the uh the the action sequences came out of sort of an emotional surge i've heard people describe this as a musical with fight scenes where it it plays the same sort of um the same sort of role as the song numbers do in a musical is that if you take one out it will make less sense and each one is a well, conversation it, they they're a conversation yeah and but the the like the film is a dramatic like everything is about the drama and the relationship and the characters and when their emotions swell so much that they cannot express what they're trying to say with words, they express it with violence. Like that's when the fight scenes break out yeah. is at these emotional apex where they're like, th- this would be the point in a musical where they would break into song. Instead, they start fighting and these action sequences do so much for like, they express so much emotion and so much like every fight sequence in this movie tells a story and it's so much more uh more emotional than a lot of what we see in marvel up to this point where you can see the characters develop and the way that they are fighting changes based on their emotional state and how like you can tell just by the way that xia ling is connecting her her punches and simu and and Shang Chi is not, and the way that they that he's fighting very defensively and she's fighting very aggressively, that she is exercising six years of rage at him leaving her and abandoning her, and and all of this, like you can feel the emotion behind every fight scene. Yeah, in in like a drama, this would be like Adam Driver punching the wall because they have to <laughs> yell at each other about how mad they are, but. But instead, could this conversation be a fight? Yes. Yes, it can. And mm-hmm. it's better. And and the, to, to your point, like, you know, the way that the, the scaffolding fight ends, 
it's it, it's such a good ending in punctuation physically and then dramatically because he you know beats death dealer after us seeing you know that being like a thorn in his side during his training and then he sees his dad and the movie becomes like a completely different movie like the movie mm-hmm. the trailer showed you basically ends at like 55 minutes and then you're like oh, oh wait I thought we were going to be running from this guy for the next act. What do we? Uh, oh, okay. I guess we're going. And then it completely shifts gears from like street level martial arts into another martial arts fantasy genre entirely. Right. And then it it becomes Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, or you know Journey to the West. It becomes this big fantastical magic infused martial arts movie where before everything was like you said very street level and grounded and realistic. This is the score composed by Joel P. West, whose work I haven't heard before. It's stirring, elegant, and bombastic. The scene when he uh, fought Death Dealer uh, had uh, what's now becoming kind of a... It feels like it's an homage in terms of colour and pacing to that that very standout Roger Deakins captured fight in Skyfall. Uh, It's silhouetted against that beautiful Mm -hmm. glowing jellyfish. And there's a lot of uh, complaints, especially uh, from martial arts cinema aficionados, camera editing that's way too fast to conceal that the white lead is not particularly fantastic (laughs) at martial arts. The taken treatment. Yeah, the taken treatment. And uh, it's amazing how much of that was used in Iron Fist. And um, the, the better fights tend to have longer takes so you can really see the movements play out and tend to be sort of further out so you can see all the limbs and so you can actually see, see the direction people are going in. But I particularly like now when not only like we've got that kind of the the bathed in neon glow at the top of a building but craning up to an overhead shot i think the most visually dazzling fight in ip man is the one in three that starts in an elevator and then slowly works its way around some stairs i say slowly it's fucking (laughs) frantic and furious but it's dazzling to see martial arts from above especially in long takes with many complex movements and both or multiple actors working in conjunction with each other. That felt so authentic and so, when you can see not so much the money working as the training working, I think that's what people respond to when they, they want that level of authenticity in martial arts. It's not real. If it was real, they'd be kicking the shit out of each other and they're actually not supposed to do that. <laughs> I was disappointed that Death Dealer just got dispatched practically off screen <laughs> in a kind of, oh yeah, we, we were done with this person now. It's like, I thought that was like a dude. I thought that was like someone who was going to end up being dramatically pivotal to the plot or something. Well, that was definitely the way he was framed, but I actually quite like that in a way because that's like the, here's your inverse ninja theory, yeah. stomp. But they could have made that into a gag, like yes. Shang-Chi sort of gears up to fight him and it's like, finally, I'm going to fight you. And then the dragon swoops in and Yoink. eats him. That would have been so much better. Or like, um, well, me- Maybe not not uh, him, but his sister, or even uh, uh, Katie, going. Okay, I'm going to kick your ass for everything you did to him. <laughs> they kind of did that because his his uh, 
in Noble Death was the start of the sequence that set up between uh, between we don't need to work together mm. and yeah we should work together. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it, it was fine. I just I, it it felt like that was being built to something, but it's not the first time that in a big movie we thought it was being built to something like Trevor Slattery, uh, and then it turned out <laughs> to be something else. I always liked the uh, Iron Man three. Repeat. Me too. Uh, it's a little it's on good. the nose, and uh, I can understand why Asian people in particular would be like, wow, this is insulting in like seven different ways. And I completely echo that. But the dignity with which Tony Lung re-enters the scene, and the, the, the little Marvel short that they relaunched on Disney uh, Plus recently that was on the Nobody Bought It Blu-ray of uh, Thor The Dark World, so this was the, fi- <laughs> like the first time people were actually getting to see this, of Trevor mm-hmm. in jail getting picked up by the real version of the uh, man he was impersonating. It just makes it feel like he's been in the background for a long time, which of course plays into that story. But the meeting between him and who would eventually become his wife actually got me crying in a way I, what mm-hmm. I hadn't expected. I was uh, sort of sitting down to watch the movie going, oh, thank-. like watching, like it was the first time Sharon had been, uh, Sharon and Willow had been able to watch a, uh, a Marvel in the cinema since Spider-Man Far From Home two years ago. Yeah. And I was like, okay, cool. You know, really, like a, a, this wushu beginning, it's it sort of, again, if you watch Hero, it feels like it sort of takes place in this guy's lifetime because he's a Highlander. But <laughs> then the actual confrontation between him and uh, the, the eventual mother took place. And it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. Like one of my favorite martial arts moments in cinema. And it just immediately cemented itself like that. The fact that he changes throughout the fight. Mm-hmm. And like they never say it out loud, but Michelle Yeoh kind of nudges at the idea of, you know, well, how was she able to beat him? And the simple answer is, he wanted to be beaten at that point. He did not want to defeat her. There's that reckoning that they have upon each other. This one's much more of a dance. This one possesses the beauty of the Zhang Yimo films. It <laughs> is magnificent, and I love this moment in the film. And what a way to start. They echo that same sort of uh, style and motion and camera movements between uh, between Wenwu and, I forget this character's name, and I, I apologize for that, um, but between those two at the beginning and Wenwu and Shang-Chi at the end, where he's looking up at his son the way that he looked up at his wife, and it's reminding him of how he got to where he is and what he was fighting for. And and that I think that motion, that sequence was what brought him back from the precipice and reminded him that his family was more important than whatever his goals were and and that was what eventually let him gave him the ability to give up the ten rings again I think there's another layer to that as well it's it's subtle and I could be reading more into it than uh, it needs to be but the the interaction that he has with uh, Ying Li uh, Shang-Chi's mother is the, the way it shifts, he starts off with a, a very specific style of fighting and gradually over time he starts to imitate hers. Mm-hmm. And it really puts in this 
uh, this tone of how His you philosophies can learn changing. from somebody mm. if there is love between you. And, and sort of her becoming this, in the, in the space of this fight, she becomes a, a mentor to him. And his, what, what he then drew from her in terms of, as you say, philosophy and, and approach was all bound up in how he felt about her. Everything that Shang-Chi learned from him after her death was because he forced him to learn it. There wasn't that sense of uh, Shang-Chi learning from his father because he cared about him. He was trying to impress him. He was trying to get his respect and, and, uh, and, and earn love from him in a way, but he's not learning from him because he wants to in order to further that connection. And I think in that moment, there's kind of a, a realisation of that, which is very melancholy. Yeah. I cut you off, Brendan. I apologise. Oh no no you were you were making great points um but the to to go back to that opening fight the the character work that it does specifically for uh, Ying Li as well like we don't get to see a whole bunch of her but she's got you know a little bit of a sense of humor like she's she's got like just a bit of a you know not necessarily like you know extremely wide puckish streak but she plays with him the way she catches him and throws him in the water mm-hmm. and then the way that informs on their relationship you know where you see him like trying to cover her eyes when they're doing dance dance revolution and so the 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 that fight is not just telling you a a courtship in the moment it's giving you a glimpse into the entire decade or so that they spend together as well as priming you for a genre shift for more fantastical elements with these bodies in motion more than two hours, well, more than like an hour and a half into the film. Mm-hmm. It also allows you to see those uh, family cross points as well because uh, Shang-Chi definitely has a lot of his mother in him in terms of his personality and it, it would have been nice to maybe get a bit more of her to, to kind of see that connection but what we do get it is you can see it in him later <clears throat> whereas Xiling is is much more the one who takes after her father. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that it's also <clears throat> her specifically telling him this story in, in Mandarin you know, we're getting the vo- we're getting his mother's version of this so we're getting right. to you know hear all of this through her her sort of perspective get kind of a Narnia vibe when they finally reached the uh, the fantasy area and Michelle Yeoh turned up that uh, army they all turned up wearing Aslan's strawberry red and I was like wow well, I'm getting weird flashbacks to Narnia here we got a cover got a bunch films. of lions big yeah, giant they lion, had a yeah. big old lion at least one and uh, it, it just had that same kind of it's us versus the forces of darkness um, well, we must have a bit of a battle. Also, the whole, like, well done for coming here. Here is your bow, Susan. I mean, Katie. <laughs> now learn to be really good with it in just half a day. Now chase those talking On animals. this grassy area. Mm. 
Um, the the colour coding on the costumes, and I really want to be able to sit down with this and actually go through the the colour theory of it in more detail. But the, I was really hoping you were going to bring so this up. So striking, and the there's a lot of emphasis on the contrasting between blue and red, mm. and particularly when the two armies unite, it's <clears> kind of that feeling of. But blue and red are not automatically opposing sides. We just place them that way. And um, but one thing I did notice was that a lot of the uh, the people when they first meet them are wearing outfits that have both uh, kind of a tealy green and uh, a rich kind of yellow in them. And those are the colours in Shang Chi's jacket. Mm. The uh, football jacket that he's wearing when he arrives. So it's yeah. it's almost like he's he's already carrying this family with him, even though he didn't know it. He's also got the um the the red that he has um with the like slaughter colors on his his dragon scale armor. You have almost an inverse amount of red in his jacket on the bus fight. So it's like he's mm. he's gradually gaining more of that color of Talo until he is clothed in it completely in the final part of the film. Mm. So speaking of the colors of these, I had a question that I'm hoping that Sharon might be able to bring some insight into because, you know, she's the the color theory person on uh, on the show. Is there significance to the fact that Shang-Chi's final costume is the color of the rest of the people of Ta Lo, but Xia Ling's final costume is the color of the dragon? Ooh. I was expecting her, honestly, as soon as she saw her father's body, to uh, uh, get into a Harry Osborne style, you killed our father after I told you not to. Now you and I are enemies forever. And that's how they set up the villain of the next uh, uh, movie. And ultimately, that's not entirely off the table in terms of there was probably something you could have done to save him. But um, I like how they still remained brother and sister through that. But I think mm-hmm. it's very overtly deliberate that they gave her a costume that was kind of steely and lacked a colour of her own, so she had to find her own. Mm. Yeah, I, I think <clears throat> for me, and again, this is kind of seeing Sorry, I answered your that, question, no, Lesha. No, no, that's fine. This is probably partly me seeing something reflected <clears throat> that I brought to it rather than something that was inherently there in the film. But the, the appearance of the dragon particularly as it leaps up out of the lake reminded me of the river spirit dragon in Spirited Away Mm -hmm. and there was there was a connection in my mind between the dragon and their mother and I part of me thought that the dragon was going to turn out to be their mother obviously that didn't happen but it's still Mm -hmm. kind of representative of her and ultimately uh, Zha Ling loses her as much as Shang-Chi does Uh, in a right. way more so because she's younger when uh, her mother dies. So there's, there's a couple of years there that she's not had with her. So being able to take on an aspect of this creature, which is kind of, in a way, uh, potentially a representation of their mother and use that strength to kick herself up to the next level of her growth mm. I would okay. say that there's there's um, definitely a, a potential for that there. That, that that tracks. I did also notice, and I, I don't know if this was it probably wasn't coincidence, uh, coincidence, but I did notice that in after they got to Talo and Xiaoling was watching everyone fight, 
and uh, you know, Aunt Nan hands her the the rope and uh, tip. What is that called? Yeah, rope dart. Okay, so when Aunt Nan hands her the rope dart and she goes off and trains in in the bamboo and like sort of reclaims her warrior spirit she's wearing the same dress that lee was wearing when when we met her nice. in the very opening and that green obviously uh, uh mm-hmm. is, is a, a, a oneness with nature and love and uh just it's it's all the positivity of the film is in the green yeah um another fantastic choice was to turn the 10 rings which were originally just rings on the mandarin's fingers as he went through his fu manchu routine uh into those 10 fighting rings the something that's been in uh, Shaw brothers martial arts movies for for decades the yeah it like turning it into a piece of of chinese heritage and something that can be used in a variety of ways uh mm-hmm. and it just really brings it up to that superhero level that was a splendid idea and Very making them choice. a mysterious alien artifact as well <laughs> that needs to be unlocked and studied that also it's effectively his mjolnir mhm yeah Plus, as Bob Chipman pointed out, there's ten rings, there's ten Eternals, and the rings are summoning someone. Um, one thing that is, I've got to point out, and it fucking sucks that I do, because like there's so much of this film that's great, is that there is a clash between the cinematography and the colour grading. This is not really a condemnation of the shooting and actually the the the, the fo- photographing of the landscape and the rooms in particular but there were times when and this struck me in the cinema it's going to be even worse on TVs that the frame would have the back of someone's head and she's wearing black at night in a dark room or on the scaffold at night the best shots were when there were lights that threw characters into relief to allow you to see the action that was going on. I very rarely got to see skin texture, which is now something, uh, and costume texture, like especially with all these wonderful costumes on show. Like costume texture, we, we, there's a lot more ruggedness to it, but it, it had that kind of soft mid-2010s Marvel grading that made certain scenarios much murkier than they needed to be which meant that the action started out very immediate very human very uh police story as you say very it <laughs> felt closer to reality and in the context of of uh, a bus we've all been on those and it ends with shang chi and his sister flying around on the back of a dragon for a long long time <laughs> And no martial arts is taking place. And it felt like it was much more... They literally took a back seat as this murky dragon fight went on. And these two avatars, effectively, for representing the concepts of, uh, you know, conquest and protection, did battle what which they bore witness to, which somewhat takes away from Shang's actual journey. And the fact that it was photographed in a way that... In that whole scenario, the only things I could really see sometimes were the glowy lights from the the Ten Rings or the dragon's um, like effects. It felt like it got a little overwhelmed in the fantastical and to in specifically the fight with his with his father was on grey floor with grey sky and his father was wearing dark charcoal. It's like, please (laughs) illuminate this. 
And again, it's not poorly photographed. I mean, ultimately, the cinematographer also has to arrange the lighting. But this is possibly a side effect of doing too much on green screen. And then during the digital grading, the effects that get added are murkier rather than throwing light relief onto everything. I only yeah. say it because those shots, and they were only a couple for a few seconds. Like there was one point when they, the bat creatures start flying out of the mountain, we think, because we're looking across the river and I was literally craning forward in my seat and everyone, like everyone on the shore was looking at the oncoming thing. And I'm like, under these circumstances, the lake may as well have been shrouded in mist for all I can see. I know in a few seconds time, I'm going to see something, but that is just charcoal slurry. What you needed at hmm. that point was Vin Diesel to say, looks clear. Looks clear. But yeah, no, <laughs> then you get some like rim light covered, the creature effects through Riddick's eyes. It looks really striking. Mm. And ultimately, because you're working in fantasy, you can use crazy light effects and throw huge amounts of magic color in there to illuminate things, no one's going to say, I wish it was darker and grimmer. Mm, you can. I mean, we already saw the like bird dragon things that were just flying around on fire. Yeah. Mm, indeed. But like, we could just have a rule that all of these scenes that take place outside at night, it's got to be a full moon, mm. okay? I mean, I, I, it's, it's, I, this is something that I not, don't necessarily have a problem with this film. I do have a problem with Disney's color grading in general for their live action features. I found repeatedly with things like Maleficent, Mistress of Evil, with Dumbo, and some shots in Cruella. Mm. Like I was pausing it and photographing a shot and going, I cannot see anything on this shot. But my <laughs> photograph actually looked better than what, it, what, what was on our OLED TV okay, because it actually was focusing a little more on the speck of white in the distance than the camera had. That said, I will say that watching films that have that colour grading issue at home is better than watching them in the cinema because at home we can, if necessary... See things around the, the TV or tweak the setting. We at least know we haven't gone blind. Exactly. We're at the cinema, it's like, all I can do at this point is squint. I'm sitting in the dark <laughs> listening to Monstars. Yeah. But look, it's, only, it's more noticeable because some of the shots are absolutely staggering. It's like there are some... Like, some of the most beautiful moments in MCU history are in this film. And they are held in sharp relief by the moments where it goes, ah, I don't know, some, some stuff happened in the shadows over there. <laughs> I wonder if there's a, a clash between... And this this is one of the few places where Shang-Chi being a, a martial arts fantasy movie... Mm like a lot of the you know big higher budget martial arts fantasy movies we've seen come out of China over the past few years sort of clashes with our our at least western hollywood perception of how color affects narrative because if you look at the very broad use of color when they get to Talo, it's very bright and welcoming when they get there. It's green and sumptuous when they're training and then you know oh stormy skies, clouds, dark things because the the bad guys are here and the the people, the, the the creatures are breaking out. So like, oh no, it has to be dark before the dawn because that's just, you know, how blockbusters have looked for, for decades at this point. Like, I mean, yeah. you know, the two towers with the dark and the rain and, mm -hmm. and all that stuff. But, you know, now obviously there's still ways to do that. But if you look at, for example, the Yin Yang Master, which came out, 
this year. It's on Netflix. It also features a small army of people trying to hold back an army of invaders, you know, protecting various gates and things. But it's it's like middle of the day, very bright, very high contrast, very high color. Mm. And it's just the the way color is used culturally. I'm I'm not sure if that was like a you know, being at odds with itself or just a, you know, Marvel does have, you know, a bit of a, a mandate to make things look similar enough to be in the same world. Um, right. If if there had been like just a bit more light sources when you have that final battle between Wenwu and Shang-Chi, because, mm. again, like you said, the way it's shot and the way they're choreographed and, and how they're they're using their abilities in conjunction with martial arts oh, yeah. it's beautiful. is really so good. But it is just they a could frankly green screen different surroundings into them for the home release. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but but it's just it's a little bit slate gray and dark brown. Mm. And if if it had been, I mean, you know, we we saw Black Panther, which we've talked about before, mm. how that has like the you know nice bright green middle of the day sort of almost episode one high noon battle sort of thing going on. I think you know maybe wow when maybe episode one sort of- becomes a high point of visual clarity. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, if you like the Windows screensaver, yeah, yeah, no, I, I know exactly what you mean. The um, I, I I recently compared a shot from uh, the end of uh, Thor Ragnarok. You know when he's and he's going coming in sideways from the top right hand corner in slow motion with like with lightning bursting out of him down towards the bridge and it's fucking epic and I compared it with a shot from Thor: The Dark World where um where Alan Taylor had a red smudge wandering through a giant red storm towards another thing that might have been the villain. And I'm like, I can't see anything here. This is the worst end villain fight in Marvel history. It never reached that... Like For a start, it never got that bad because I knew what was going on, dramatically speaking, between Shang-Chi and his father, as opposed to Malaketh, whom Thor has no particular stake in apart from you killed my mum and you only killed my mum because the narrative said that you killed my mum. Right. So yeah, it, it's it's a tiny thing. But the whole thing of that, I would, I would endure all smudgy grayness for Michelle Yeoh and the presence and phenomenal dignity that she brought that particular role. I've been dying to see her in this role uh, in, a, in a, a capacity that kids could watch for a long, long time. And she she brought it. And it's 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 everything we've come to love about her over the years. And, and it felt like that authenticity and that sense of heritage being passed on. She was the person to do that. Yeah, the film makes use of the uh, very good use of the every time Michelle Yeoh kicks someone in the face, an angel gets its wings rule. (laughs) (laughs) And also to offset the whole, you know, uh, you could bring in realism for a lot of the uh, smudgier Marvel fights. Netflix daredevil fighting ninjas in the dark and me not being able to see anything. It's like, well, when ninjas wear brightly colored costumes and attack in broad daylight... What you got there is the Power Rangers movie, the first one. <laughs> and there are still some just genuinely staggering moments of like, like when Shang-Chi is using the rings as midair platforms oh, and yeah. swinging oh, yeah. on them. You know, when when basically when it's time to watch someone kung fu fight a dragon while riding another dragon, mm. like I, I get like there there is a lot of, you know, CGI third act stuff going on there. But I, you know. I don't see people fight 
dragons with kung fu while riding other dragons in like the Fast and the Furious movies or the Iron Man movies. So that was pretty nice. It was nice, but that's what made me think, oh, I've been waiting for this kind of sh- scene for so long. Use it. And <laughs> yep. there was so much noodling before it actually came to the actual final clash that I, I felt that was a bit of a wasted opportunity because the concept the way you described it just there sounds amazing, but when you're actually watching it, there's a lot of flying around. I'm not going to front. I have very little familiarity with Shang-Chi as like a a character from comics. From what I understand, right. he's a lot more street level through most of his comics run mm. that, you know, more similar to stuff like, you know, Heroes Bruce Fire. Lee's Enter the Dragon or, you know, just like basically the, the first half of this movie. Mm. Um, so I, I don't know, like in terms of what sort of stories could be adapted. And honestly... Um, as as fun as it was to have him meet the administrative staff um, at the very end, uh, like that was that was really neat. Especially when you get to play with the idea of like, oh yeah, this guy's been fanboying over Wong for a few years, so of course being able to meet this dude would be kind of a big deal. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I just, in just particular more... loved the way that uh, at the uh, end when Wong shows up, it's like, let's investigate these rings. Are you not going to take us to see Doctor Strange, this white specialist who'll tell us what these are? No, I'm a librarian. <laughs> I know my shit. <laughs> exactly. You know, you brought up Black Panther. I just feel excited to explore more of this world. Like one of the first things I wanted after Black Panther wasn't necessarily, ooh, a movie where Black Panther meets, you know, X, Y, or Z. It was like, I want a martial arts movie featuring the Dora Milaje. And so yeah. I sort of got a lot of flavors of that in this. And so I'm just like, I just want to like go to this place and see more of those people or mm-hmm. go to that place and see more of those people and just like mm-hmm. see those corners filled out while people get kicked and punched in the face real good. So really it sold you the world. Exactly. Yeah. Definitely. This corner. In terms of brand synergy uh, hopes, I actually now really want to see Katie show up in the Hawkeye series. Hawkeye. I was going to say, there you I'll go. teach you how to because, use a bow and arrow, kid. Oh, wait, you got and, Hawkeye. And her mentor is now gone, so she needs another trainer. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Go with that. Oh, uh, that was uh, Landlord from um, Kung Fu Hustle, wasn't it? It was the, uh, uh, the guy who originally had no faith in her yep. and then had faith in her. <laughs> yes. She became yes, a... The, the millennial who was it was almost like sort of you know come on millennials you can do it try and hit your targets if you don't try and aim it was almost like trying to be nudged out of the house which is fine if we weren't confined to barracks mm. yeah I, I think I just had an idea for something I would like to see and it's uh, the Kamataj librarian and it's a storyteller style series with one <sighs> Having, having people come to the library looking for specific mm. books and he finds them the book and then tells them the story or the, the thing that they're looking for in the book. And it never occurred to me, by the way, that Benedict Wong and Benedict Cumberbatch. So when they were filming, Scott Derrickson must have been like, Benedict, yes. No, this is all about Wong. Which Wong? Me Wong or Wong Wong? Something like a Warehouse 13 style mm-hmm. series where it's basically Wong is 
tracking down and securing and cataloging magical artifacts throughout the universe. Ooh, that's even better. Yeah. Especially given that this almost turns into Stephen Summers' The Mummy with like, oh, here's a magic map and a lost <laughs> city and, you know, an ancient curse, and which I loved, you know, so Absolutely. like, yeah, more more of the just just more stuff that like plays with you know treasure hunty bits I'm yeah all i mean it, it does have a treasure hunty feel to it like the um the, the trying to find the hidden city they we could definitely get an indiana jones uncharted mummy out of this almost every member of the cast that has a speaking role is asian they uh they, they went mm-hmm. out of their way to go look at uh, another character enters who has to take them upstairs he should be asian and again like to sell us that world White people can definitely take a back seat, and it was so refreshing to see a big-budget blockbuster that did that again. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't really, like, stick out unless you're paying attention to it. They're, you know, it's just a story. You can just watch people in a story. Mm-hmm. It's okay, white people. It'll be fine. <laughs> I do want to just take one second to appreciate the notion that Trevor Slattery is basically being playing the role of Scheherazade now mm. just like telling stories so that the 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 king doesn't kill him <laughs> it, again it was really nice to actually uh, sort of see that character brought forwards and um morris, morris. yeah morris in terms of things designed to sell plushies morris was definitely uh, in the sort of upper middle echelons not an apper but uh, still uh, pleasant to be around my wife literally said that as we were walking out of the theater the first time. She says, "I want a, I want a Morris plushie." Mm. And it's actually, such a cute little butt face chicken. Watching this film, I was like, uh, as what I'm assuming many people, and at least one person said this on the Discord. Wow, they could have made a really good Last Airbender movie series had they given it this level of love. Maybe they still will. Maybe they still will. Yeah. And uh, as, as long as Iron Fist doesn't turn up, whatever the hell happens, no Iron Fist. Thank you very much. Um, someone said uh, you could just recast him and sort of bring that uh, together with um, uh, the, the the history that he's uh, brought. But ultimately to go, yes, but we've got a white martial artist here with blackjack and hookers. I'm like, I d- no one needs an extra martial artist. Also, the idea of a martial artist who's also a treasure hunter who specializes in, a, in ancient relics and not necessarily doing it for like a, a pastime, but is sent off on quests. That's a series I could totally watch. Absolutely. Yeah. That's watch one of the things that I loved about Aquaman. Marvel's so, Uncharted. Yeah. And, you know, we're going to need it for when the Uncharted movie turns out to be a bag of dicks. <laughs> so, <laughs> after all that time. Poor Tom Holland. Poor Tom Holland. Poor Tom Holland. Yeah. School of Movies is brought to you by Patreon, funded by you, the listener. And a special thanks, as always, to our top-tier patrons. Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alex Outridge, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Duran Barnett, Finbar Nicole. Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joe G, 
Josh Waster, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Mark Luksh, Marty Huey, Matthew A. Siebert, Matthew Webb, Michael Haskell, Robbie Crow, Sarah Montgomery, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. Okay, so that should about do it for Shang-Chi for the time being. Uh, gentlemen, let the folks at home know two things. One, where they can find your best work. And two, an Asian-centric movie that we haven't really talked about in depth yet. And it doesn't have to be martial arts now that I think about it. Uh, start with Jesse. Uh, you can find me at uh, my own podcast called Recorded Tomorrow. It's all about time travel and uh, stories that use time travel and how to effectively uh, do that without pulling people out of the story. Um, you can also find some of my consulting work in a book by uh, Mr. Alex Shaw here called Back in Time Plus Space. I'm pretty proud of how that turned out. Uh, the the podcast is on a bit of a hiatus, but we're coming back here soon. We are setting up some interviews and uh, going to do a low-key show here in the next couple of weeks. And uh, I'm going to recommend that folks go see The Farewell if they haven't, because nice. it's it's Aquafina doing just really, really incredible dramatic work. And um, it's a, a really like heartfelt insight into... Chinese culture and Chinese American culture and how the two clash. And uh, I, I don't think enough people saw that one. And uh, I found it to be really powerful. Yeah, it's a it's a family drama and uh, one that you can definitely sit with and we'll come back to you. Brendan, uh, you can find um, I actually just posted a um, within the last uh, few days, uh, what to watch after Shang-Chi specifically about um, uh, martial arts and, and fantasy action cinema. Um, so that's on Synapse, C-I-N-A-P-S-E dot C-O. Um, I would recommend all of those movies, but particularly The Paper Tigers, which is, it's on Netflix. It's, um, uh, it, it came out like last year, but it wasn't really available until this year. Um, it's like a very small budget, practically independent film written and directed by Kwok Bao Tran about three former prodigies who basically like, stop doing martial arts after they were teenagers, you know, together and come back together after their master is killed. And so you basically have, it's not necessarily like police story, but it's, it's a riff on the martial arts comedy street level, sort of like guys running around getting in fights, but they're like older guys who have to deal with the fact that they're shitty dads and have bad knees and have <laughs> kind of crappy jobs. And, you know, it's it's a very, very different sort of martial arts film. It's also very much a family drama, but it definitely brings, you know, it brings the fight scenes when it has to. But it's got a very different feel to it because it's very honestly dealing with people not being in as good shape as they they wish they were and so i think that's a lot of fun it's also like i said it's on netflix Oof. so it's easy to find i can relate to that sharon what would your uh, asian representation movie be i think i'm gonna go with fury mm -hmm. the one we mentioned the uh vietnam set mother rescuing kidnapped daughter yeah it's like taken only it's a lot more frantic because she's 
she's technically a debt collector, uh, but she's in over her head. And as opposed to, I will find you and I will kill you. It's more like, I'm going to try and find you and everyone's going to keep trying to kick my ass as I as I uh, get through. It's very dramatic, but uh, it's, it's, as I've said before on this one, it shows off Vietnam as a place rather than a time, rather than a war that happened decades mm-hmm. ago. Great choice. Veronica knows so good in that. Yeah. And I'm going to take two. Uh, one that I mentioned earlier, Iron Monkey, directed by Yen Wu Ping in 1993. It is a martial arts comedy about a Robin Hood figure defending a small town from shitty governors. Donnie Yen is fantastic in it. And it's really funny. And another one that's easy to find for you, one of the best films of this year, the South Korean Space Western by Jo Sung-hee, Space Sweepers. It's a little bit Guardians, a little bit Cowboy Bebop. It's sly yet earnest, and it's fantastic. We'll be talking about this at the end of the year. It'll be in a lot of people's end of year roundups, so grab it now. Space Sweepers on Netflix. We will be back next week with the first of a pair of retrospectives on the first two Daniel Craig Bond films. See, I originally talked about Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace all the way back in 2011, 10 years ago. 10 years on three episodes covering the whole 007 series with James Batchelor and Gary Blower. And it was early days for me, and Sharon wasn't on those shows. And we recorded dedicated episodes on Skyfall and Spectre in 2015. Remember the before times? And figured... (laughs) With this last one, No Time to Die, emerging after an immensely long, quiet period of six years. It's the same six years as between License to Kill, Timothy Dalton, and uh, Goldeneye with Pierce Brosnan. Only rather than a brand new Bond, it's the brand old Bond doing another one. (laughs) It's a new Bond, it's a new Bond, it's the same same Bond. Bond, It's the same Bond. Bond. We decided we would travel back to the beginning, so we will see you next week, shaken but not stirred. Until then, I have been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And school's out. out.